All right, so this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 6. I'm going to uh, hopefully get all the way through the chapter. Uh, We're going to do kind of a jet flyby view. I'll hopefully finish. Um, I kind of want to uh, start off here with just a real brief review Um, looking back at chapter 5 for a minute as it informs our study of chapter 6. Even going back to the end of chapter 4, the the miracle of Jesus taming the storm, um, showing His power and control over nature and its obedience to Him. Then in chapter 5, we looked at three primary miracles. Uh, The first was the healing of the demoniac. The second was the healing of the woman uh, uh, that had been bleeding for 12 years. And then the third was Jairus' daughter. All the way throughout chapter 5, Jesus gradually reveals Himself as hope for the hopeless. I hope that you saw that last week. Uh, He heals a man who was hopelessly wild, a woman who was hopelessly ill, and a man who was hopelessly bereaved by the death of his daughter, and a girl who was hopelessly dead. All of these hopeless by human standards we talked about. The people in the region were unable to bind the demoniac any longer. The experts in the community, the doctors, no matter how much money she was able to give them, were unable to cure the woman. And to their knowledge, no power existed in the universe to raise someone from the dead. Not even the teacher, or so they thought. Yet Christ in His majesty and power and compassion triumphed over hopelessness in all three cases. He cast out the demon and transformed that wild man into a missionary. He healed the woman and strengthened her faith from a faith that was concealed to a faith that was revealed in front of everyone. And then He brought back the child to life. And not only that, but He cared for her, making sure that she got something to eat. In chapter 5, we saw Jesus' power and compassion both revealed. Chapter 5 was full of faithfulness, faithful responses to Christ. Chapter 6, for the most part, is a faithless chapter. Most of the responses to Christ are characterized by some some level of faithlessness, as we're going to see. In chapter 5, the three main characters recognize Jesus, who He is, what He can do, And they responded in faith. In chapter 6, Nazareth, Herod, and the disciples, in one way or another, all fail to recognize Jesus as prophet, priest, and king of the universe. And what he can do as such. But the chapter will end with some people coming to Christ once again in faithfulness. So if somebody would turn, uh, or y'all would turn to Mark chapter 6, if somebody would please read the first six verses for us. Mark chapter 6, the first six verses, loudly please, so everybody can hear. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him, at him and Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and 
Thank you, Woody. So we, Jesus comes to his hometown. These people have known Jesus since his birth. They've watched him grow up. The text indicates that they are well aware of all of the teachings, all the healings, all of the miracles that Jesus had performed up to this point. Capernaum is only 25 miles away. These people are well aware of Christ them. They know all of these things. And he goes to the synagogue that Sunday morning and he begins to teach. And as, they con- as he continues, they listen and their hearts harden and they reject Christ. While many seek him and wish to even touch the hem of his garment as we've seen in this, in, as we looked over chapters 4 and 5, these people discount and discredit all that Christ has done. All because they think they know who He is and what He can, should, and shouldn't be capable of doing. You can hear the detractors. What does a mere carpenter know about oratory and prophetic interpretation and fulfillment? What does this carpenter know about such things? In their mind, he's only capable of being a carpenter, a son to Mary, and a brother to his siblings. Though they were amazed and intrigued, the text tells us, when they had to make the choice to have faith or not, their hearts were faithless. His family rejected him. We saw earlier his relatives rejected him. And now his hometown is rejecting him. In their minds, he had already decided that Jesus was just not capable of being who many claimed him to be. No matter how many teachings, healings, and miracles they had seen or would see and hear about. In verse 6 it says, And he marveled because of their unbelief. This must have been pretty discouraging to Christ. To come off the heels of that, the end of chapter 4 and 5, all of those strong, faithful responses of the people and now to be rejected by the people who you would suppose would have accepted him gladly. That word marveled, that's the same Greek word used only in one other story in the New Testament. And it's found in two places, Matthew 8, 5-10, and the parallel story in Luke 7. And it says, When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he, same word, marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. The centurion's faith could have hardly been expected. 
he was far less privileged than the Jews in that area. Nazareth, however, above, above many places, should have been a place where faith was expected because of the extensive ministry of Christ in all of Galilee. Most people that got reject, or get rejected so starkly in this way as Jesus was would have conceded, admitted defeat, and given up their endeavor. But obviously Jesus is no mere man driven by his own ambition, but a servant of his Father, doing the will of his Father. And even when nearly an entire town rejects him and his message, he presses on. What an encouraging and teachable moment for the disciples to witness. When opposition arises, press on. This is the lesson he wants to teach them, and that's exactly what happens next. So somebody would please read verses 7 through 13 of chapter 6. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two things. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the testimony against them. So they and proclaimed that people should repent. And anointed, anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So instead of being defeated, Jesus here intensifies his evangelistic efforts. At the end of chapter 6, it says that Jesus continues to go on from village to village, teaching and healing many sick people. I haven't got there yet, but it just perpetuates this idea that all throughout Scripture, no matter the amount of unbelief, that we may, or Christ, or his disciples may have encountered, there remains a golden thread, a remnant of people who believe. And this is why we share the gospel. This golden thread, this remnant of people who Jesus is preparing to receive the gospel. We see here that after his rejection in the synagogue, Jesus instructs, empowers, and sends the twelve disciples out on their own mission alone. They're no longer disciples, they're now apostles. Men with authority to represent their sender. They're representing Christ and his authority. They're to take no food, no extra clothing, no money, nothing except a staff, the clothes on their back, and the shoes on their feet. And just in the case of his recent rejection, he instructs them how they are to respond if they too are rejected in any place they go. So a question, why would Jesus send them out with only a staff, the clothes on their back, and the shoes on their feet? They would have to go out in faith that the Lord would provide for them for whatever their needs might be. But there's also the, the idea that the people to whom they're going to are to see that these are God's representatives and they are to take care of them. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you, Woody. Absolutely. They are to rely on God to provide and supply all of their needs to 
to, to follow His holy will. And also, as Woody said, the worker is worth his wage. Those who hear the gospel are obligated to care for those who provide the gospel. It was the duty of those hearers to expend hospitality. This was my experience when I went to Indonesia for two weeks. We were there sharing the gospel. And when we would, we had very few places that we had planned to stay. But as we went about these small villages, these people would just come out to the street, ask us if we had something to tell them. And since we did, invite us in to tell them and to stay with them and to have a meal with them. They felt the, they, they showed hospitality. They felt obligated to care for those who were sharing a story with them. This is exactly what Jesus wanted the men to do. There's also another nuanced part to that second part. The worker is worth his wage, but the apostles also, Jesus wished for them to have a cooperative spirit with the places that they were going. Those sharing the gospel were not to depart from the ones who were hospitable to them just because they differed in some minor details. If another house was maybe to be desired, or maybe better food would have been provided in another home, they were to nonetheless stay in that one home that was hospitable to them, the entire stay in that city, and not to prioritize their personal likes and their dislikes moving from home to home. The gospel must take priority over personal likes and dislikes. The same is true when we visit someone's home. We don't make a big deal out of personal likes or dislikes. If someone serves us something we don't want, we just eat it. I think it also applies to us congregationally as well. If you remember, I was talking about the Reformed Baptist Network, and on the very last day, right at the very end of the meeting, after they had closed the session, they asked for some discussion among all of the churches. They wanted to brainstorm over the direction that they wanted RBNet to continue in and ask for input and other things. And the one thing that most of the men made very clear was that they were to make room for lawful disagreement and maintain love and unity among the brethren. They have to make room, we have to make room for lawful disagreement to maintain unity among the brethren. In a network like that, more and more churches are coming, more and more people, and there's going to be little things that are disagreed upon. And those are the things, if not covered in this love of Christ, will divide. No question. It's what happened in its predecessor. Am I right? Arpka. This is what happened. Division because of dividing over these things. So, continuing, Jesus does give them every right to leave those places and shake the dust off their feet where the gospel is not received and accepted. A rejection of the gospel means leaving that place. They are rejecting Christ. They are rejecting the gospel. So, another question, why send them out two by two? Why not alone? Yes? 
also because of that, they are witnesses. Yes. There not be anybody put to death except for the witness of two or more people. Yes. Now, obviously, they're not going to put anybody to death, but there are witnesses to God. Yes. Yes, they are apostles, they are heralds of Christ's good news. So to be a valid witness, two of them need to be there. It's exactly right, Woody. Thank you. Think about it. Peter and John, Barnabas and Saul, Paul and Silas, Barnabas and even Mark, going out two by two with the same message, to be valid witnesses. So Jesus continues his efforts. He sends the disciples out on a mission And I wanted to point out that that mission kind of has three parts. Um, There's the preaching and teaching aspect. So as I said, they transition from disciple to apostle, and that apostle is a herald. He is earnestly proclaiming news initiated by God, not themselves. They are preaching that men should repent and be converted, the text says. And then it says that he also gives them authority over unclean spirits. So this power was given and exercised by God alone. God is the one doing the work. He's giving them the authority. And then this healing of the sick um, and this anointing with oil, um, that the oil was not magical. It was just a symbol of the grace, presence, and power of the Holy Spirit. The disciples, by using the oil, were telling the people, don't look at us for healing. Look to God His Spirit is able to both heal your body and your soul. Any questions, comments thus far? Okay, let's look at some of the results of this mission that Jesus sent the disciples out on. Uh, Let's read the next section. Somebody read 14 through 29, please. 14 through 29.
came in and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Thank you, Brandon. Uh, so this section, I think, gives us the first result of this missionary effort. And that is that King Herod hears of Jesus, it says, and he questions in his mind who he is. Some of them say he's Elijah. Some of the, re- the responders there, others a prophet. Some said he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. But none of these matter to Herod. And Mark tells us why. Herod is a wicked and conflicted man who put himself in a very wicked situation, influenced by pleasure and stubborn false pride. And he was led against his conscience to murder John the Baptist. Jesus and his disciples are out doing hard gospel work. They're tired and hungry, yet here Herod is engaging in the pleasures of the flesh. Jesus was rejected in Nazareth, so too John the Baptist is rejected. And like Jesus soon will be, John is given a death sentence. All in an effort to please a vindictive woman and maintain status and pride. There's someone else in Scripture who was tempted and sinned when enticed by the pleasures of the flesh. Who is it? Who can you think? Huh? David, David. yes. Thank you, Brandon. Herod did not humble himself and confess when confronted with his sin. Instead, his heart was hardened. David, when confronted, humbles himself, confesses his sin, and repents. This next section we're going to read here is going to give us kind of the second result of this missionary effort of the disciples. Did somebody read verses 30 through 44? Satisfied. 
Thank you, Sam. It's a lot of guys and their families. So the second result I want us to see uh, of this intentional missionary effort that Christ has initiated um, is that after three to four months of hard work, these men are weary and needing rest. Uh, They had also just gone through the emotionally charged event of recovering John the Baptist's body and burying him in a tomb. Jesus himself is weary from all all that he had done over these last several months. They needed rest. They needed time to relax, to pray and meditate on the scriptures and the mission of God that he had given them. Yet in their effort to get away and rest, they're again surrounded by the crowds who went ahead of them. They they had gotten on the boat and set out for the other side. The people can easily perceive where they're headed and literally run around the lake to get there and be with Jesus and his disciples a little longer. The lake is about four or five miles across. But it's probably about ten miles to run around the outskirts of the sea. They are so incredibly desperate to see, hear, and touch Christ. And their lost desperation is what moves Jesus to have compassion on them as sheep without a shepherd. I'm going to read a few passages. Just uh, You can just listen. You don't have to turn there. 1 Kings 22.17 says, And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Matthew 9.36 says, When He saw the crowds, He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And a few verses from John chapter 10 Uh, Verses 3 and 4 says, The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, and they know his voice. Verse 9 says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Verse 11 in that same chapter says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And finally, verse 16 says, I have, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. No animal is as dependent as a sheep. It needs to be guided, or it will wander, get lost, or become a wolf's meal. Without someone to lead it to graze, It'll starve. Jesus knows people are like this too. Think about the people's current leaders, their local shepherds, the Pharisees. They failed to give them good guidance. They did not provide their souls with nourishing food. (coughs) These shepherds were too preoccupied with legalistic niceties, Sabbath restrictions, fasts, and tassels to be concerned with people's souls. We too must be careful with what preoccupies us 
and distracts us from the shepherd and his mission. So Jesus and the disciples arrive across the shore. They have a very short rest up on the hill above the shore. And again, those crowds that had ran those ten long miles around the sea begin to form down by the shore. What would you be tempted to do in this situation that Jesus and the disciples find himself in? Yeah, go away. (laughs) Leave them. Jesus could have scolded them. He told them they were going. He could have told them to go home. He could have told them to come by some other time when I have more time to visit with you. Yeah, we're on vacation. Yeah. But he didn't say, I'm tired and have no time for you right now. So as we read, instead of sending them away, he goes down to them and he begins to minister to these people and teach them many things. His heart goes out to them. In his mind, in his omniscience, he probes their sorrows. He understands them and their burdens. He loves them. He removes their afflictions and heals them, the scripture says. And this love is not just a feeling. He is moved to do mighty works among them and for them. This love of God is going out to them. Out of his compassion, he teaches them, he heals them, and he feeds them because he loves them. So not only are Jesus and the disciples obviously hungry, but the crowds also. They had no doubt been listening to Jesus for many hours, ran around the lake, listened to him some more, and the sun is now getting low. So think about this. Over the last two and a half years, Jesus has shown his disciples he has the power over the storm, over demons, over physical illnesses, over death, And in spite of all of these miracles and displays of His power, they still don't understand how they are going to feed these 5,000 men, women, and children. What did Jesus mean when He told the disciples, you give them something to eat? What is He trying to teach them? I think he's trying to teach them three things. First, sorry, he's teaching them not to be so quick to shake off responsibility. They just wanted to send the people away, to get rid of the people. Getting rid of people in need is not a solution. And it's certainly not God's way of doing things. They were guilty of doing this several times. Here with these people, earlier with the Syrophoenician woman, with the children that come to him, often their response was, don't bother the master and don't bother us. Don't let that be your answer to people in need. I think the second thing that that Jesus is trying to teach is that he wants them to ask, seek, and knock. 
All those who come to Jesus with a need and faith have been granted that need. Think back to the wedding in Canaan. There was a great need. Mary knew who to go to to have that need met. Jesus had created a situation here where they could have brought their need to Him in faith, but instead they despair. And I think the third thing that Jesus is trying to teach them is that He is displaying His power again, but He is also teaching the disciples to offer them spiritual nourishment, spiritual bread. Jesus wants them, wants to teach them to be the means in, God which, in which God supplies spiritual bread and the spiritual needs of the people. I don't know if you guys are aware, do you know how much 200 denarius is? You know what one denarius is? A day's wage. wage. 200 days wages it would have taken to feed these people. They just don't get it. So Jesus prayed to the Father. He said a blessing over the food. He broke the bread and the disciples distributed enough bread and fish to feed the 5,000 men plus the women and children who were there. Somebody would read verses 45 through 52, please. 45 through 52. Thanks, Avery. So Jesus had spent many hours teaching and healing, and then he fed all of the crowd. Then Jesus sends the crowds away to their homes, and he again sends the disciples away to rest, this time without him. They get into the boat, they begin to row to the other side. Uh, Jesus stays behind to rest himself and spend time in prayer with his Father. couple of things about that. Prayer, communion, prayer and communion with the Father and meditation on the Scriptures were a very integral part of Jesus' life and ministry. Very integral. So too, they should be a part of our lives and ministry. In John's Gospel, not here, but over in John's Gospel, the, the, the similar story kind of clues us in that Jesus stayed behind and secluded himself because the people were wishing to make Jesus their king right then and there. And so he sends the disciples away and and goes away by himself um, and sends the people away. So, sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus sees the disciples struggling against the wind to get across the sea. How wide did I say that sea was? Four miles. Four to five miles. So two and a half miles out in sea at 3 a.m., 
without Jesus, yet from the shore, He sees them physically. He sees the struggle. But He also sees the struggle of the unbelief in their soul. Who sent them to rest? Who brought up the wind that is pushing against them? Who is no doubt praying for them at that very hour? Normally they would easily get to the other side, just as when they came across the first time. But the wind is fiercely in their face. So these men have been rowing and rowing for hours and hours to get to the other side. They are worn out, they are tired, they are exhausted. And I'm sure at that hour, probably a little bit delirious. And all of a sudden, they see something walking on the water next to them. What do they do? They're shocked. They're afraid. They scream out. They cry out loud. They're completely terrified and mortified. By nature, water is completely unfit to walk on. Yet Jesus walks on it. Jesus casually strolls through the wind and the waves without any difficulty at all. The end of verse 48, it says, He meant to pass them by. What does that mean? What's going on? If you remember with the bread, He had given them an opportunity to come to Him with their need, to have it fulfilled. And now He comes near to their boat, but graciously affords them the opportunity to invite Him aboard. Without their welcome... He plans to pass right by them to the other side. Jesus' divine sovereignty over these events in this very moment by no means rules out their call to acts of faith. To call out to Him with their need. Several attributes of God are displayed here. His divine knowledge, His omniscience. He saw them out there struggling physically and spiritually. His divine power, His omnipotence. He not only stills the waves in chapter 4, but He's also to make them into a path for His feet as He walks across the sea. And His divine love. I love how this is lining up. When He saw that they needed Him, Jesus desired to be with them. He loved them. He saw them struggling. He wanted to be with them. In the text there it says, Imagining they are looking at a ghost. After everything that's happened, they simply don't understand the complete and utter and power and rule over all things Jesus has. In many ways they're blind. They don't recognize Him. Herod doesn't recognize Him. How often do we fail to recognize all that Jesus is doing in us and around us? A lot. The disciples had a heart problem. They failed to ask themselves what could be expected of such a divine being as Christ. Their faith was small but growing. 
it was sleeping but needed to be awakened. If you hear nothing else, hear this this morning. Faith must be wide awake in order to come to legitimate conclusions from firmly established truths that we find all throughout the Scriptures. Faith must be wide awake in order to come to legitimate conclusions from firmly established truths that we find all throughout the Scriptures. If our faith is only barely awake, if our time in the Scriptures prayer and engaging in faithful works is minimal, then our sleepy faith will bring us to us to suppose we are seeing a ghost, not our Savior. So Nazareth failed to recognize, Herod failed to recognize, the disciples in many ways failed to recognize, yet the people of Gennesaret immediately react in a different way when they see Jesus. In verses 54, we're going to just finish up here. In verses 54 and 55 in that last section, and when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. The people immediately recognized him and then they run about the entire region telling people and bringing people to Christ to be healed. Uh, Just a few points of application here, and then I'll be done. Uh, We must be a people who are greatly involved in the study and memorization of God's Word so that we don't fail to recognize the power and presence of Christ. How we represent Christ in our neighborhoods and communities matters, and we will have an effect on the reception of Christ in those areas. Don't let the pleasures of this life and of the flesh get in the way of recognizing and following Christ and fully engaging in gospel work. Expanding the kingdom of God is hard, long, tireless work. There is little time to rest, yet we must make an effort to rest in Him. This is the purpose of today, the Sabbath. Where God calls, He will supply. He'll supply location, He'll supply transportation, He will supply food, He will supply rest, all in their proper times and in their proper quantities. We must make every effort to keep our faith awake and growing. And finally, in our efforts to serve Jesus and be heralds of His good news, we must seek with all effort to maintain unity with one another keeping our focus on Jesus and on His mission. Any questions? We have one minute. I, uh, I found very interesting that last phrase in verse 52. says, but their hearts were hard. Mm-hmm. We're talking about Christians. We're not talking about unbelievers. Mm-hmm. Christians can have hearts hardened. Is, is my heart hardened? As I go to interact with somebody who I yes, yes, failing to contemplate all of these things that Christ had done in their midst properly, they were tending to harden their hearts. Yes, brother. All right, let's pray.